Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. We've been talking about the world of higher education, and in this episode, we turn to the issue of academic freedom. In one sense, most everyone knows about academic freedom, the freedom to research in whatever areas one likes and to come to any conclusion justified by the evidence. Academic freedom is first and foremost about truth. To be sure, academic freedom does protect professors or academics in general. But the reason for the protection is that we want researchers to seek after truth wherever it lies. We want students to be able to come to their own conclusions and be able to state their views without fear. In other words, there are no limits on the questions that can be asked, nor on the answers that result. Of course, any time we get to the subject of freedom of any kind, we always need to remember that freedom is never absolute which means that there simply is no absolute academic freedom. I can't simply say whatever I want. And as it turns out, you can't do so either. Well, you could, but there are certain things that if you say them, they're going to have consequences. I suspect that upon hearing the term academic freedom, you might think of Galileo, who was proclaimed a heretic and lived under house arrest until his death. This was, of course, because Galileo suggested that the Earth was not the center of the universe. But one shouldn't extrapolate too much from that one event. Well, it's true that European universities were governed by the papacy and belief in God was a given. Within those boundaries, a great deal of discourse and research was allowed. One of the most important aspects of the development of European universities during the Middle Ages is that they became self-governing institutions that were able to define their own standards for those who taught and for their students. Universities developed their own set of criteria for what counted as acceptable speech and research. If you think that medieval universities were unfriendly to science, you should take a look at the evidence. As the nation-states came into existence, governmental authorities began to limit what could be taught. In Kant's famous essay, I've referenced this one before, What is Enlightenment? Was ist Aufklärung? which was published in 1784, he opens by saying, and I'm going to just quote the first paragraph, Enlightenment is the human being's emergence from his self-incurred minority. Minority is inability to make use of one's own understanding without direction from another. This minority is self-incurred when its cause lies not in the lack of understanding, but in a lack of resolution and courage to use it without direction from another. Supper aude. Have courage to make use of your own understanding is thus the motto of the Enlightenment. We've talked about this essay before as illustrative of the attitude of modernity. Think for yourself. Be independent. We've also talked about the fact that thinking for oneself and being independent are not nearly as simple or easy as they might seem. But here I want to point out something else about this essay. 
Kant says enlightenment only requires freedom, but note that he has a special sense of freedom in mind. He writes, the public use of one's reason must always be free, and it alone can bring about enlightenment among human beings. And then he goes on further to define public as the use which someone makes of it as a scholar before the entire public of the world of readers. In contrast, private reason is what one uses in one's job or daily life. Kant suggests that private reason might not be perfectly free. One example he gives is of an officer who receives orders but also reflects on appropriateness or utility. This is a quote from him, in which case such reflection is, according to Kant, that of a scholar. Kant's point is simply this. The officer has the responsibility to obey the order, even if in his private reason he might question it. By the way, I can't let this point go without just a quick note. One of the reasons that people give for the rise of Nazism was that Germans are generally rule followers. If you've spent some time in Germany, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's interesting that Kant only speaks of one questioning in order in private, whereas publicly there is no other choice than to obey. I'm going to leave that point without further reflection except to say that I lived in Belgium before I lived in Germany, and Belgians simply do not have this propensity to obey every law. If they can find a good reason to ignore a law, they do. And from a personal standpoint, it's also so much easier. Another example that Kant provides is a pastor who is required to teach whatever the church teaches, even though he might have questions about it, shall we say, on his own time. One might respond to Kant that such a pastor shouldn't be thinking these other thoughts. However, it would be hard to imagine that everything one might say as a pastor is utterly the same as one's own personal convictions. In Kant's view, pastors fully with the convictions of their given ecclesiastical commitments. But Kant isn't content to let it rest there. He praises Frederick the Great, who was then the king of Prussia, which is where Kant was living for his commitment to allowing free discussions of religious matters. Actually, he goes on at quite some length about just how great Frederick really was, saying that the Age of Enlightenment is absolutely identical with the century of Frederick. In short, Frederick allows the people to think for themselves on spiritual and religious matters, even though they still have to obey his commands. One could read these statements as evidencing Kant's confidence that Frederick will not interfere with Kant's writing. But I think it's clearly the other way around. Kant is publishing an essay calling people to think for themselves. Don't you think that might just be seen as a little subversive? By the way, while Jesus wasn't arguing anything close to Kant, the very fact that he was deeply questioning the religious hierarchy of the day made him an obvious target. In other words, Jesus' version of thinking for himself, remember he's questioning the authority of the religious leaders, was not very well received by those in power. 
1790, Kant went on to develop a radically different conception of Christianity in which anything that's contrary to science could no longer be accepted. And thus, no miracles, no virgin birth, no resurrection, etc. The book in which he works out these thoughts is titled Religion Within the Bounds of Reason Alone. By the way, Frederick had died four years earlier. In 1798, a follower of Kant, Johann Gottlieb Fichte, published a short article titled On the Basis of Our Belief in a Divine Governance of the World. In turn, an anonymous author wrote a pamphlet on the essay denouncing Fichte as an atheist and calling for his removal from his post at the University of Jena. Fichte eventually was forced to resign and escaped to Berlin, where he became, where became a tutor. I hope Fichte's example illuminates why Kant was opening to cozy up to Frederick for protection. In 1811, the Humboldt Universität zu Berlin was founded by Friedrich Wilhelm III at the initiative of linguist Wilhelm von Humboldt, uh, the philosopher Fichte that I've just mentioned, and the theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher. With the establishment of this university, the basic paradigm for academia is set in place. Professors were to be researchers who taught students. Note that I put the term research in front of teaching since that was the priority that was established. If you've attended a tier one research institution, then you already know that your professors are mostly interested in their research and they're not very much interested in you. That's why I've recommended liberal arts colleges because they exist with the primary function of teaching students. In the best-funded liberal arts colleges, professors are given ample research leave so that when teaching, they can focus primarily on students. In any case, the University of Berlin established the twin principles known as Lehrfreiheit, this is uh, translated as freedom to teach, and Lernfreiheit, which means the freedom to learn. When the university ended up on the Soviet side in the Cold War, the Soviets immediately suppressed academic freedom by requiring that lectures be approved by the Communist Party. Just as a reminder, the university wasn't exactly free during the Nazi era either. At least if we're telling the story of academic freedom in general, Berlin is a good place to start. If we're telling the story of academic freedom in the United States, then it's helpful to consider Stanford University. Back in the 1890s, there was a young professor at Stanford named Edward A. Ross, who was an economist. But his work wasn't all academic in nature. For instance, he published a pamphlet titled Honest Dollars, in which he argues for what is known as the Free Silver Movement. The most important aspect of that publication is simply this. The argument for silver, in other words, the silver standard instead of the gold standard, is that silver is better for the working class than gold, which is associated with the money class. One must not forget that Stanford University exists because the Stanfords made so much money from building the railroad that they needed somewhere to put it. All you have to do is simply see the vast difference in wealth and importance between the young economist who clearly wants to pick a fight and the wealthy Stanfords. It comes as no surprise that Jane Stanford, 
asked the then president of the university to fire this young guy. Then in 1900, Ross gave an address in which he called for the removal of Japanese immigrants. You can see the pattern. He argued for either questionable views or ones that were a little crazy. However, the concern at Stanford wasn't so much that Ross was espousing bizarre views. It was more that he was expressing any political views at all in his capacity as university professor. Eventually, Ross quit. But that wasn't the end of the problem. Seven faculty members also resigned in support of Ross, which, given the size of Stanford at the time, represented 10% of the faculty. You may have already figured out that having 10% of a faculty leave all at once presents a very serious problem for a university. All of those positions would need to be filled. Then there's the problem once the story gets out to the press. Those resignations naturally sparked a debate about what university professors are allowed to say in public. Up until this point, there just wasn't any kind of agreement or protection for a professor for being fired for saying things that the university didn't like. Colleges and universities routinely remove faculty whom they considered inappropriate. The story I've just told is one that you can find if you do some research on academic freedom. But I want to add another one. In 1919, a group of Columbia University faculty left to found what they called the New School for Social Research. Columbia was founded as an Episcopal school, and the faculty had to sign some kind of document affirming its mission. The faculty who left didn't want to have to profess any allegiance to the institution. One must not forget that most of the universities that we now regard as secular were founded in most cases to provide education to pastors. That's, for instance, why Harvard was founded, and were expressively religious in nature. Years ago, I met a doctoral student at the University of Chicago, and I mentioned where I taught, and he immediately said, Oh, is that Baptist? Well, I thought that was a pretty reasonable guess. My response was simply this. No, actually, it's Chicago that's Baptist. It was founded to be a Baptist institution by Rockefeller who provided the funding. I probably don't need to say that Chicago doesn't much function as a Baptist university at this point. I suspect that most students there don't even know that it was once Baptist, but of course, this also gets to the aspect of academic freedom. What you could have said when the university was concerned about its Baptist heritage, and what you could say today would undoubtedly be different. To put this point another way, when evangelicals or conservative Christians say that their views are not particularly welcome at major universities in the U.S., that is largely true. We'll come back to this point later, but I, I do want to just say, yes, that is true. One of the professors who left Stanford with Ross was a guy named Arthur Lovejoy, who taught philosophy. Working with John Dewey, who at that point was teaching philosophy at Columbia University, they founded the American Academy of University Professors in 1915. So remember that it was in 1919 that Columbia faculty left to found the new school. Dewey was the president of the society and Lovejoy was the secretary. At least from my vantage point, it's completely understandable that philosophers would be the people who would most want to establish academic freedom at a university or college. 
you may remember what happened to Socrates. You might not, however, know that Aristotle only escaped the same fate by fleeing Athens. Yes, they wanted to kill him, too. AAUP's first publication was titled 1915 Declaration of Principles on Academic Freedom and Academic Tenure. The immediate circumstance that caused the formation of the society was the firing of two faculty members at the University of Utah, followed by 14 professors who resigned in solidarity. That was the first test of the society which investigated the matter at the University of Utah. It's worth mentioning that some of those faculty had been involved in a previous controversy at Brigham Young University, the flagship of Mormon higher education. I don't know how Brigham Young ran back then, nor do I know exactly how it's run today, but I can easily imagine that there are many things that you are not allowed to say there. Please don't hear that as either a complaint or a negative comment. It's always the case that in whatever situation you're in, there are some things you are not allowed to say. The difference, of course, is that some worlds or environments are more open than others. You might find it interesting that this inaugural document received considerable pushback, even from the New York Times. But I don't find that at all surprising since this document was laying out some freedoms and responsibilities of the academic world, and these had never really been articulated before. The basic tenets are simple enough. Professors deserve to have, and now I'm quoting from the uh, document, full freedom in research and publication of the results, along with that same freedom in teaching. Finally, the statement declares that the university faculty have rights as citizens to speak their minds and that university censorship is completely unacceptable. However, in case you're thinking that university professors can simply say whatever they want about anything, the document also contains the proviso that professors should be careful, and now I am quoting again, not to introduce into their teaching controversial matter which has no relation to the subject. Since I taught philosophy, there was more than enough controversial matter in the subject itself without bringing in any additional controversies. In fact, I tried very hard to avoid certain kinds of controversial subjects. Sometimes I would hear of a professor talking about something far removed in a class setting. That always struck me as a misuse of the office of professor. Yes, we have views regarding lots and lots of things, but there are only certain matters in which our views relate to our teaching. One of the criticisms of the newly articulated idea of academic freedom was that it said nothing about students. Shouldn't students be free in the same way? Obviously, academic freedom is going to be different for students than for professors. As professors, it would be a dereliction of duty to allow students to, for instance, write on anything they want. Students often come up with research topics that are far too broad, and allowing them to simply continue on that path would be very unfair to the student, because it would mean that it would be taking on a project that would just be too difficult. But yes, students should be free to come to whatever conclusions they think are warranted. Many years ago, I had a former student tell me 
that he had used the course I taught on Nietzsche as, and this is how he put it, not me, an excuse to leave Christianity behind. I appreciated the honesty, because he now saw this earlier move as more, as he put it, an excuse rather than a, a reasoned argument. But as professor, you realize that people can take what you say and do various things with it. I don't know if you remember that one of my former professors said that I should be able, I'm using I because the point he was making was specifically about me, to teach Nietzsche and somehow guarantee that no students would ever be persuaded that Nietzsche is right. I find such an idea laughable, but also deeply disturbing. Not only do I not have any way of making that happen, but I also don't want to stand in the way of anyone deciding what it is that he or she believes that Nietzsche has said. I think the former professor of mine views his duty of care to students as including making sure that students don't believe anything false. Well, I have no desire that any of my students ever believe anything that's false. I think their academic freedom is too important for me to try and control it. In other words, I want students to arrive at a position that they think makes sense, even if that position might be very different from what I hold. Let me give you a, re a remarkable example of academic freedom. There's a guy named Arthur Butts, who is an associate professor of electrical engineering at Northwestern University. He's also the author of a book titled The Hoax of the 20th Century, which came out in 1976. He had already received tenure in 1974. So you might think, how is it possible that a Holocaust denier teaches at a major university? Well, it's possible because certain conditions are in place. As you can imagine, when faculty at Northwestern discovered that the book had been published, they were outraged. There were even more outraged when he put his views on the university website in 1997. His colleagues, 60 of them, put out a statement in which they described his views as, and now I'm quoting, an affront to our humanity and our standards as scholars. Obviously, that last phrase, our standards as scholars, indicates that the Holocaust has been extensively researched. One can choose not to take that research seriously, but then the point of his colleagues is that he doesn't really belong in the scholarly world, which has cr clear criteria for establishing what counts as historical fact as opposed to what's just fiction. But Butts is still there. The university determined that academic freedom allowed him to hold such a view, though he is not allowed to teach any of those views in his courses on electrical engineering, where I assume they probably wouldn't very naturally arise. Courses in the department are scheduled in such a way that there will always be another section of the course offered at the same time, so students will never be forced to take his courses. Okay. I've just given an example of that academic freedom that is pretty far out there. It's about as far out there as it gets. You should know that cases like this are rare, and this is why it's received so much attention. If it were just normal and average, and every day, yeah, it wouldn't be talked about. Most professors aren't saying anything even remotely as controversial as that. 
Instead, they're much more likely to say something that is judged either by students or fellow faculty members or the administration or the board of trustees or the alumni or the people who give a lot of money as controversial given a particular academic setting. I made the observation that early on, Brigham Young was part of a controversy. I'm not Mormon, so I don't know where the fault lines lie in that world. I'm sure, though, that there are fault lines, and there must be ways of crossing them that would provoke censure or dismissal. I did, however, grow up in the evangelical world, and I have some idea of where those fault lines lie. But here's the thing. As I've said before, in the conservative world of academia, it is sometimes only after you've said something that you get into trouble. Remember Larisha Hawkins? She was a tenured colleague with me. A few months after my removal from the institution, Larisha posted a picture on Facebook of her wearing a burqa and proclaiming solidarity with Muslims in the U.S. One of the things that most surprised me was how widely that story got picked up by the press across the entire world. Alas, what didn't surprise me is that these statements did not go down well with many of the conservative supporters of the institution. Regarding the idea that they all worship the same God, I didn't find that all controversial. But when I talked to a former student who ended up being a doctoral student at the place in Scotland where I was a senior research fellow, he was quite convinced that they most clearly did not worship the same God. I think my basic problem with the idea is mathematical. Jews, Christians, and Muslims are monotheists. Perhaps one could say that if the description is too far off, it's no longer defining the same true God. But I'm not going to go down this road any further because it seems to me just too unclear. How would you establish either that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all worship the same God, or that they do not? Teaching at a conservative place like Wheaton meant that there were many potential things you could say that could cause problems, but you didn't always know where the line was until you'd already stepped over it. I've given the example of teaching Aristotle to a group of about 70, 80 students. We were talking about Aristotle's idea of the unmoved mover, and that drifted into a comment about God. I simply said that the Bible provides no answer to the question, why did God create the world? From the standpoint of biblical knowledge, I was confident that what I was saying was correct. Calvinists tend to like the idea that God created us so that he could be worshipped by us. Besides making God sound really needy, there really isn't any evidence in the Bible for such a view, though I'm sure my Calvinist friends would have some kind of answer. Calvinism is one of those systems designed for people who really like answers to all possible questions. But despite having the Bible on my side, I was soon in the office of my dean, who somehow found out what I had said. She told me that I simply couldn't say what I'd said. In other words, I needed to come up with some explanation for why God created the world. As a Lutheran, she said that she believed that God desired to have fellowship with us. As much as I liked that view, it still struck me as something about which one can't really have a very informed opinion. Indeed, given the work that I've done in philosophy on idolatry, 
My worry has always been that people come up with gods that are made a bit too much in their own image. I had no desire to contribute to the Creating God in Our Own Image project. But what made the statement that the three religions of the book have the same God or capital God so problematic? I'm going to take a stab at that. From what I know, the school got criticized by the left. Not exactly a surprise. But what surprised them was the reaction from the right. It was both much more vociferous and insistent that she must be fired. The difficulty, as I'm able to discern it, is that there wasn't any strong argument that they could make for why they don't all worship the same God. If you were to pose this question to various evangelical theologians, you'd discover that there's absolutely nothing like a uniform position on such a point. In other words, there wasn't some strong view that was being threatened by a very clear and wrong statement. But one aspect that needs to be acknowledged is that evangelicals don't have a particularly positive view of Muslims. From what I've been able to tell over the years, that negative view is based on very little evidence. It's not as if evangelicals have done a deep and thorough study of Islam and found it wanting. Actually, I have serious questions regarding the extent to which evangelicals know and understand their own views. But if you start with the idea that Muslims are profoundly wrong, not just on a few points, but on a whole bunch, and then you add some idea that they're bad or maybe evil, then it would be very difficult to get from there to the idea that all three religions worship the same God. I think that that's only part of the answer. Larisha was the first black woman to receive tenure at Wheaton. That was considered a milestone for the institution. But not everyone seems to have been happy with that milestone. As I say, I had already been fired from Wheaton a few months before all of this happened, so I wasn't able to find out all the ins and outs of what was going on. But I started to go online to see what I could find. It didn't take very long before I stumbled across a post by someone accusing her of having, and this is the word that was used, radicalized the students at Wheaton. Alas, when you use charged language, it often is unclear as to exactly what it's supposed to mean, other than you know it's bad. Obviously, radicalized is a term that, at least from the mouth of a self-professed conservative, is not going to be positive. What had she done to radicalize students? Explained how difficult it was to be a black woman in the U.S.? Tried to give students an alternative way of thinking about and examining the world? I'm sure she did those things, but I don't see them as remotely close to radicalization. But then I start to ask, maybe just allowing the students to see the world from a black perspective was already too much. One of the things I used to say that as long as you talk like a straight, white, male evangelical, you'll be fine. Seriously. There was so much emphasis on using the right language. I hope you hear where this is going. I think the secular academic world is also enthralled by some language and probably often rejects what is stated in different language. This is not to say that the two sides, if we can even put it that way, are merely mirror images of one another. It's merely to recognize that any community 
has what we can call its orthodoxy. While we usually parse that out in terms of belief, orthodoxy can also be defined as proper worship. Those who do not consider themselves religious are likely to object that orthodoxy is a religious concept and thus not applicable to so-called non-believers. But even if the term worship may be too strong as it's usually defined, it's important to realize that the word worship comes from worth-ship, the idea that something is worthy of being praised and valued. I'm not going to cite some Christian to make this point. Instead, I'd like to cite someone else. In the Apology, Socrates says some rather mean things about his fellow Athenians. He accuses them of being more concerned with money and reputation than the state of their souls. In contrast, Socrates praises the examined life. It's a life worth living, says Socrates. In other words, instead of ascribing worth to money and prestige, Socrates says that the most worthy thing for a human being is to care for one's soul. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that I get annoyed when people think that caring for one's soul is about religion and thus feel content to dismiss it as outmoded. Whatever Socrates is talking about is hardly old-fashioned. The concern for the integrity of one's being is part of what it means to live a good life. But let me add one thing about integrity. It's often cited as a concept or word with the assumption that Everyone knows what it means. Integrity, though, is about having life in which the parts fit together. It's nothing like an achieved state. In fact, it's the goal toward which we move. That's part of why I called this podcast On Becoming. We're always moving, changing in one way or the other. That's the end of the free portion of the podcast for today. If you'd like to hear the rest, uh, you can become a subscriber. Please consider supporting our podcast at Patreon, where subscriber-only content is included at every membership level, along with other subscriber-only exclusive benefits. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join. Thanks.